0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Untangling the Lines. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Duffy. I'm a board-certified anesthesiologist working at a small animal referral hospital, and today we are joined by Lori. Hi, everyone.
1: My name is Lori Rasbeck. I'm a certified veterinary technician. I work in the surgery department, and I do anesthesia.
0: So today we are going to be talking about how we prepare ourselves for our anesthetic cases. So it's going to start by discussing how we introduce ourselves to our patients and our cases, then how we set up for induction, and then also in the OR, and also how we prepare ourselves for any anticipated complications that we are expecting based on the clinical history. So Lori, what do you usually look for when you're starting to put together yourself for a case?
1: Well I like to go through the patient's record. Uh, The information that I think is important to note off firsthand is um, the patient's weight and do a TPR and I like to make sure that I'm the one that is listening to the heart myself and to the
0: lungs. Have you ever found something that that someone else has missed?
1: we have and i have um definitely i think that sometimes especially in the emergency setting on intake it is easy for somebody else to overlook a very mild
0: heart murmur yeah um so it's good that you're you're astute and you're taking kind of control of that case yes And something else I would add to your kind of basic physical exam is I also like to take a feel of um, my pulse quality to make sure that we're not having any pulse deficits, especially on those emergency type cases that you're describing.
1: Yes. I also like to meet my patient um, and get a feel for their... Demeanor, uh, how they're presenting in person, especially even if it's for a routine procedure like orthopedic or even a dental or -hmm. or anything like that. I like to note how the patient is responding to the stimuli of the room. Are they friendly? Are they calm? Are they aggressive? Mm -hmm. And those things certainly will alter the anesthetic plan.
0: Absolutely. I know that we generally try to make our anesthesia plans ahead of time before Mm -hmm. the patient has arrived. And we do so based on the notes in the medical record from its previous consult visit, although it doesn't necessarily always describe the dog comes into that prep room that first time. And we can sometimes adjust our anesthesia plan, not just the drugs that we're using, but maybe the way that we're going to give it. If we're going to do an IV direct stick for pre-medication, or if we really need to do an IM or if we need to start with orals, like an oral gabapentin, trazodone, and anywhere on that, we might not really know that when we're making our initial drug selection.
1: Yeah, I think that is really important, especially to advise the owners before they even come into surgery, if we're able to, to give um, some sedatives or some pain medication beforehand to make the animal's experience a little bit easier for when especially if they're anxious coming into the hospital absolutely it
0: helps us it helps them it helps the owner it helps everyone yes so at this point we have met our patients we've done a physical exam we've gone through the record and we found that the basic information like his current weight and his tpr so what's next for you
1: Well, next I would be looking into the reason why the patient is in the hospital in the first place or what procedure they're presenting for. And then from there, I will look into the record for any um, current medical history or previous medical history uh, as far as any other surgeries, any other uh, hospitalizations or illnesses or any underlying diseases that might be present. And then also what medications the patient is currently taking or has taken within the past, I would say, maybe week or two or even like in the past month.
0: It's also nice to see what the veterinarian has prescribed the dog, and then see on the owner intake form what the owner has been giving the dog because sometimes they don't always overlap.
1: Yes, that's true. <laughs> they or the medication has been prescribed and the owner hasn't
0: yet started it or picked it up yet, yeah. but was anticipating yeah. getting there. Especially when it comes to like heart meds like Pimobendan, things like that. It's usually good to see when what the dog is prescribed and also when the last dose was.
1: The next thing that I look for is any recent diagnostics that have been performed. Uh, What I want to see is current blood work. And typically for something that is not urgent, um, we'll usually accept blood work within a two to three week span. Um, I also wanna see if any radiographs have
0: been performed. especially looking at the points of interest. Like if you have a fracture, you want to be able to look at the fracture yourself and really know what you're dealing with. I think a good example of that is if you, let's say you have a pelvic fracture and your plan is to do an epidural, then you want to see, is my pelvis in too many pieces that I won't be able to actually use the pelvic landmarks appropriately to actually get my epidural done.
1: Yes. And if we're doing a uh, soft tissue tissue surgery, we can see the bladder. Uh, if there's any stones how many stones where they're located are they in the urethra exactly yeah all of that and then uh, any other specific diagnostics abdominal ultrasound any uh, ct or echo that have been performed yeah
0: so overall there's a whole multitude of data points that we're collecting when we go through the patient's history And we generally like to put it all together into a problem list because sometimes things are all over the place in the medical record that, I mean, for my own mental clarity, I just need a simple list. So I will go through, and for example, with a foreign body, I might say, has an intestinal obstruction, has a mild dehydration, has increased gastric fluid, and has a mild increase in a liver enzyme. And... That's just a random patient, but that puts all of my different factors together into one list for me to then kind of create my anesthetic plan and start to think about what complications am I anticipating. Next, I think we should go and kind of do a little sidestep and discuss how we interpret blood work and which aspects of blood work is actually important for us as the anesthetist and what what values we particularly like to look at. So when I'm looking
1: at the CBC primarily, I look at the white blood cell count. If it's elevated, then I'm concerned that there is an ongoing infection. Uh, if it is below normal, then we're worried about sepsis. Yeah.
0: I mean with it can go either way but usually if they have one neutrophil named Nancy then that's usually not a good sign. No.
1: Um, and then I'll take a look at the red blood cells and primarily the hematocrit. I look to see if it's elevated, are, is our patient dehydrated? If it's low we're looking
0: at do we need a blood transfusion? And I think for us the big threshold, although It's not 100%, but our general threshold is 20% on the hematocrit. So if you are in the high 20s, low 30s, I tend to be aware of that fact. However, I don't usually intervene very much. And then if I see that the PCV is actually less than 20%, I am more likely to start a blood transfusion either before surgery or during surgery in the case of blood loss, but I just know that we have less. And the reason why, red blood cells in general is important is because the red blood cells are what carry the oxygen through the body and if you don't have enough red blood cells then you don't have enough oxygen and if you don't have enough oxygen then the cells can't really survive and do cell things and so the remembering that the red blood cells are important carriers for oxygen for oxygen delivery to the body is really its primary role so it's not just a value that should be at a certain number but it actually does have a functional purpose in our patients. Yeah and
1: I think as a baseline we also look at the um, PCV to determine how much fluid rehydration needs to happen prior to surgery or during surgery or if there's a complication. If the numbers are middle of the road then we know that potentially if we're looking at hypotension that maybe fluids is not the issue.
0: Yes, I would agree. But if you're starting with a PCV in the high 50s and you know it's been vomiting or they have kidney disease and we're more likely to see dehydration in these patients, then we might reach for fluids faster because our PCV is telling us that we have like a decreased water content, which therefore increases the concentration of red blood cells, therefore increasing what we call the PCV or PAC cell volume.
1: Yeah, and then what I look for next would be a platelet count. We want to make sure that there's enough platelets
0: to support coagulation during surgery. Yes, and at minimum, we want to see 50 to 70,000. Usually, the number should be 2, 3, 400. So when you're down to 50, you have a significant platelet deficiency, which is its own problem. But usually, we are very cautious about going to surgery if you have a platelet count less than that number right and that would also trigger us to run more tests like maybe a full coag coag panel yeah something of that nature so then i think we can move on to our chemistry and the first thing i usually think about are the uh the kidney values which would be your bun and creatinine they don't essentially live in a vacuum but they do kind of give us a little bit of an insight so the bun and creatinine can be increased if you are just dehydrated in the sense that you don't have enough blood volume to be clearing everything appropriately through the kidneys or because the kidneys themselves aren't filtering appropriately and so you have blood getting there but then the the kidneys can't remove those compounds
1: i think that's very common in our more common cases like
0: the urinary cat yeah like a blocked cat perfect so if you do see an increase in BUN and creatinine, we'll call that being azotemic, and we like to try to suss out, is that because my patient is just dehydrated in what we would call pre-renal azotemia, or is it because my patient's kidneys aren't functioning and that would be called a renal azotemia. The way that we figure out if an azotemia is from the kidney or from a dehydrated state, we will then compare that value to the urine specific gravity or the usg if we see that the usg is very concentrated that means that the kidney is working in overdrive so we're more likely to think that our azotemia is from a pre-renal or dehydrated state however if the urine is not concentrated and it's azotemic that's generally suggestive that the kidney itself is not filtering enough and is also not concentrating enough. So when you see an azotemic patient, your next reflex should be, what's my USG?
1: When I'm looking at the liver function, it can be a little bit overwhelming, I think, because there are so many tests and so many factors. Um, we're looking at ALT, ALKFOS, GGT, um, BG, albumin, bile acids. So the liver does so many jobs.
0: Yeah, it really actually impacts so many things. So if I'm looking for, I kind of like to divide my chemistry into a couple different categories. If I'm looking specifically for liver function, I look to see my BG or my blood glucose level. If my liver is not making enough glucose for my body, the BG will be low. Then I look at my albumin. Now the liver never makes too much albumin. So if my albumin is high, that must be because I'm dehydrated. It never does more than it's supposed to however if the albumin is low it's either because i'm losing it somewhere let's say in a protein losing nephropathy or enteropathy or it's low because my liver is not functioning so you have to kind of look at them together then you can also look at a bile acid test which would be considered kind of extra it doesn't really come on your standard chemistry panel but a pre and post fasted bile acids will really give you the best indicator as to whether your liver is functioning or not. But then if I see instead that my liver enzymes themselves are high, like if my, my ALKFOS, the ALP, or the GGT, or the T-billy are high, I'm thinking mucosil or bile stasis. And then if I see AST or ALT are high, then I'm thinking like liver trauma or toxin. Moving on to the electrolytes, Generally that includes sodium, potassium, and chloride. And of those three, I think the biggest one that as anesthetists we like to look at is our potassium. Because in patients that have GI disease, sometimes we'll actually see a low potassium. And usually it's mild and it's not something we really worry about. But if instead, if we have a high potassium, so maybe the six, seven, eight range, at that point we're actually quite concerned and those cases are usually going to be the urinary obstruction cases so ureteral stones or your typical cat urethral obstruction something of that nature or maybe bladder rupture is another case example where they can have a high potassium that becomes so severe that their risk of mortality or dying under anesthesia especially at induction can be particularly high And so if you see that your your patient's potassium is eight or nine then maybe before you actually induce anesthesia well you should look at an ecg because i assume the heart rate will be very low and then you can consider either giving glucose insulin or calcium to try to help combat that high potassium and make it your patient more stable for anesthesia go ahead
1: another chemistry value that we like to take a look at is our lactate levels. This is particularly important to determine how severe dehydration your patient is. We will look at that in relationship to your total protein
0: and your hematocrit. Yes. So the more dehydrated you are, the less blood volume and therefore the less blood is gonna be able to get to all of your tissues. And your tissues are dependent on that oxygen carried by your red blood cells to do what's called aerobic metabolism. And so in the face of having, being starved for oxygen, they instead convert to anaerobic metabolism, which produces lactate. So if you have a patient that either does not have enough blood volume or does not have enough oxygen, let's say if you have lung damage, then your tissues are generally gonna be more starved for oxygen, and as a result, they'll start making more and more and more lactate as they're doing more anaerobic metabolism. So when we look at a PCV total solids lactate almost as like a triad, it kind of gives us an example or an idea of just how behind on fluids is my patient, because typically a very dehydrated patient will have a high hematocrit, a high total protein, and a high lactate. So after that little side trip down our blood work avenue, I think we can get back to our kind of day of preparation for our anesthetic procedure. So on the day of surgery, we then like to kind of compile a whole new set of data.
1: Yes, I have a mental checklist that I go through, especially if I'm the person that's taking the patient in for the day. Um, and I know we try and make this a general guideline for all of our incoming surgery patients. Um, so our number one question really is, is the has the patient been fasted? And some of the guidelines for this is that if the patient is less than two kegs and less than three months of age, We do free access to food and water up to the time of pre-medication. We wanna maintain their blood glucose levels
0: for anesthesia. These guys are just so tiny. Um, So kittens, puppies, uh, the really tiny micro miniature Yorkies, they probably don't need to be fasted as long.
1: And what we'll do is we, as a general, I think we tell all of our patients or all of our clients, um, no food and water after midnight, yep. but we have been finding that that's not necessarily the case anymore. Yep. That in some circumstances, it's okay to have food
0: up to four hours,
1: four to, four six. to six hours yep. before surgery.
0: Yeah. And the idea, they were looking at uh, more prolonged, uh, food withholding times and they found that just not having food in your stomach for that long of a time can actually start to slow the GI tract itself. And then you are more likely to have both regurgitation because whatever fluid is sitting in your stomach is not moving. There's no forward motion. So then as soon as you anesthetize that patient and that upper sphincter relaxes, then you just get passive regurgitation under anesthesia. So that's not ideal, but then also on the flip side after surgery, Your gi tract has slowed down so much that you're more likely to have post-op ileus or slowing of the gi tract as well so while we we used to think six to 12 hours now we're starting to realize that maybe four to six is the is the boundary the hard thing is that if every if we could guarantee that every patient was getting surgery at 8 a.m then i think the no food after midnight is a very safe bet but then instead Sometimes we don't have patients going till 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, depending on the emergency schedule and how busy we are and how many electives we have planned. And so then if we know the order ahead of time, maybe we can kind of stagger that. Like maybe they can have breakfast at 6 a.m. and we know that there's no chance we're getting to this one by noon anyways. So it's not really a huge concern. And then that being said, there was a study that looked at, does it matter if it's dry food or wet food, like canned food, um, during – as the last meal and it seems like even if you're having a shorter withholding time if you use a canned food it seems to pass faster than dry kibble um, so if you had to pick i think that's what i would go for
1: what we would also need to know is any current medications and when was the last time they were given this is especially important with Patients who are on steroids, who have recently received a non steroidal anti inflammatory, if they had given it in the morning, then um, we're less likely to dose it again that day or we'll alter our dosing.
0: Yeah, make sure it's at least a 12 hour spread. If it's, for example, like carprofen or rimadil, we'll make sure that we're, we'll we'll see if they're using the once a day dosing or the twice a day, but then we'll be careful about our post op and said administration.
1: We also need to know a current weight. Sometimes we're seeing these patients a week out,
0: three weeks out, even if it's. Especially with corona lately. Some of our initial surgical consults were in March,
1: and exactly. now it's September. Right. So we need a current surgery day weight. We also would obtain a new TPR, um, and then. F- from the owner, we like to know, are there any, have there been any changes since the last time we've seen the pet or since the last time we've been in communication? Are they getting better? Are they suddenly not limping anymore? Are they getting worse? Um, Those things are all really important as they would determine kind of the flow of this patient's care. And then do I need any new diagnostics do I need more recent blood work do I need x-rays ultrasound things of that nature
0: hopefully your your doctor your veterinarian has kind of put together that plan but usually after you've kind of gone through the record yourself and you know what this patient is getting its general history you might actually have an idea as to what this patient might require even before they walk in the door. Yeah,
1: I'll I'll have a good idea of what we need to do as the patient is coming through the door, but it's also great to be able to um, confirm that with the doctor beforehand. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So so now our patient has arrived. So we've gone through our we've gone through our medical record. We know everything we can about our patient. We have an idea and an active problem list of our patient's issues we have gone through our intake and kind of gotten the updated surgery day information and now it's time for us to actually set up our anesthesia workstation for both induction and then moving into the or and when i think about the setup for anesthesia it's to me it's all about ergonomics everything that you should need should be within your arm's reach when you need it so the, your endotracheal tubes should not be in the drawer, but should be actually like laid out and ready at the time of induction or at the time of intubation. Um, and it just helps to kind of minimize the scramble, minimize the chaos, minimize the hey, can you go grab me this? While your patient is kind of in the flux of consciousness and unconsciousness. And anesthesia is already complicated enough and you don't need to make that worse for you or for your patient by just not being organized bef- ahead of time.
1: I have a list of things that I like to get together when I'm setting up my pre-op induction table um, for based on the patient. So I'm going to lay out some blankets and heating elements are very important uh, at our workplace. We use bear huggers and we use the hot dog warming blanket, it's contact system, contact yeah. uh, warm water circulating uh, heating heating system. Um, And that's really important because your patient can become hypothermic
0: within the first 10 minutes after induction. Yep. It all happens with the, the vasodilation that comes with either propofol or your inhalant. And when you get that vasodilation, it brings all your body heat to the surface and it just dissipates away. And so your patient might start at 100, but then within 10 minutes, you'll be shocked. They're down to 97, 96 if you're not you know, being really proactive about it. I choose the
1: fluids that I'm going to be using for my patient. I want to make sure that I'm double checking with the anesthesiologist and the surgeon of what type of crystalloids they want to use and at what rate. Generally speaking, um, we do a surgical rate of 5 mLs per kg per hour
0: in surgery. And if they have heart disease, we might start closer to 2 or 3. But yeah, I think 5 is now generally accepted as the pretty standard yeah and
1: knowing that ahead of time getting your pumps all set up that's really important so that all you have to do is press
0: start yes turn them on because you might be sitting at the head of your table and you have an assistant who is less familiar with your patient who's kind of towards the back where your fluid pumps might be sitting and not having to both teach them how to use the pump or how to program it or anything of that nature they just have to literally turn it on so, that can be really huge interest in terms of efficiency.
1: And when I set up my breathing circuits ahead of time, I need to determine whether I'm doing a rebreathing system or a non rebreathing system and choose the rebreathing bag that's appropriate for the patient. Um, generally speaking, we do a tidal volume times six, um, and tidal volume has been um, determined to be 10 to 20 mLs per kg.
0: Yeah, I tend to go kind of right in the middle. So I take their body weight, I multiply it by 60, and that gives me my ultimate minimum bag size.
1: After I've chosen my breathing circuit and my rebreathing bag size, the most important thing, I think, is to pressure check your anesthesia machine. I think it's very easy to overlook this step, um, and all that does is bite you in the bum. Yeah, um, at randomly times. <laughs> random times. So make sure that you are pressure checking your anesthesia machine, that the sodasorb was put back on appropriately, that your tubes are not cracked and that your oxygen is
0: on and working. That's a good one. I've actually found that sometimes I have come up to a machine and I go to turn on the flow meter and the oxygen doesn't turn on and I go, I have a feeling you forgot to pressure check your machine, not because there's a leak, but because the oxygen is not even connected. So yes. there's no way it was ever completed. Or a rebreathing bag is just not even on the machine. So you would have an, an infinitely sized leak in your machine. So it's a good step.
1: Yes. And then after that, we set up our monitoring equipment and having that readily available and working. Um, and In my pre-op and my prep induction area, I think the most important things to have for monitoring are your SpO2 monitor, monitoring your heart rate, uh, and tidal CO2 to check for proper intubation, uh, your blood pressure, and a standing temperature.
0: Yes. In an ideal world, we have all those. Sometimes we don't necessarily get all of them, but I think that... As much as we can, we try to kind of keep to that gold standard. Absolutely. I'll also have a pre-oxygenation cone appropriately
1: sized for the patient that we're anesthetizing. Although having too big of a cone is never a
0: problem. But having the patient's face too far in could be a problem. Possibly. I do like doing the astronaut helmet with my cats. I feel like it's the only way that they really accept the cone and accept any kind of pre-oxygenation. Um, although, really, if a patient's fighting it that hard, it's just not worth it. No, not worth it. And then as a resident, I always forgot to grab my monitoring sheet. And I would get 10 minutes into my anesthetic and then realize that I need a clipboard and a sheet and a pen, and I'm useless. (laughs) Um, But I mean, it only took me three years to get out of that habit.
1: Yeah, so your anesthesia sheet, an emergency drug sheet, or some kind of calculated sheet that gives you a little bit of uh, more information to help you in an emergent situation.
0: When I was setting up for my patients, sometimes I would just take a strip of white tape and put it onto either the top clip of a clipboard or put it on the very like the board of the clipboard, um, and then I would have my pre-calculated emergency drug doses already written out for me. So that way, um, I didn't have to flip through and shuffle through and try to find my phone and to get my calculator out um, to figure out those volumes, especially if you're truly in an emergency. Yeah, that's a really good tip. And I think the other thing is this is a little bit more, like I would say, procedural dependent. But you know, we're planning on on placing a catheter and and even what size rebreathing hose that you're going to do cuz sometimes we'll have like a really long rebreathing hose especially if we're going to be doing a procedure where the head is pointed away from us. Mm-hmm. And so knowing our patient's position before we get started so that way we can have everything both logistically, I mean, feasible and the easiest and the most ergonomic for us and without having to reshuffle once a surgeon has changed their mind as to what they want to do.
1: There's nothing worse than having your catheter in the wrong leg or yep. too close
0: to, say, a mass that's being removed yep. or? It's a sad moment. It's very sad. I once did a PDA. And I always forget. I still to this day cannot remember. But I think they go in the left femoral artery in order to um, to coil a PDA if you have a cardio surgeon and I put my arterial line in the same leg that he was going to be using for his PDA. So I had an arterial, like invasive blood pressure for all of, I don't know, 10 minutes. And then he was like, and now it's gone. And that (laughs) was SOL, yeah. And we're already draped up and yeah, you should know those things ahead of time for sure. So then at our hospital, we, so we tend to anesthetize and intubate our patients in the prep area. And then once we've done like essentially a gross prep, we then roll our patients into the OR where we do a secondary prep and that's where we actually do a surgery. And not everyone will have the same setup, but for us, we, at that prep table, where we're first starting, we like to set up what we call our induction tray. And it's, we do the same set up for every patient so even if you are an anesthetist or an assistant or someone everyone in that room knows what that tray should look like and that just also helps with team efficiency and getting through you know a really busy day as fast as possible with making the minute like the least number of mistakes
1: yeah so some of the supplies Um, that I have on the trays would be your IV catheter supplies. So various sizes based on your patient, a tea set. Always grab two catheters. If you only grab one, it's really bad juju. Yeah, you don't want to jinx yourself. (laughs) Um, Heparinized flushes, tape ripped to however your hospital says you should rip your tape. They all have their own SOPs. (laughs) Exactly. And then bandaging and wrap material to protect the catheter. Um, you'll have your endotracheal tubes, two to three alternative sizes, mm-hmm. um, an
0: endotracheal tie, and lubrication. Did you know that the lube for your endotracheal tube is actually not to help lubricate its passage down the trachea, but actually is meant to lubricate any cracks in the cuff um, to kind of prevent any channels forming where some like regurgitant fluid could or yeah, yeah, or could kind of slide by. So when you're going to lube your tube, don't lube the very end of your tube and cover up that Murphy eye, lube the area where the cuff is, and then it will actually serve its purpose of helping create that seal for you. Mm-hmm. And then I guess this is all part of my our intubation station. That's kind of what I call it. But um, so after the lube, then we have our laryngoscope and make sure it's working. Make sure that you can, it's connects and you're using the right handle with the right, blade and that when you open it the light turns on sometimes that isn't always guaranteed
1: yeah a cuff inflation syringe and then a lidocaine for intubating cats yeah
0: just to prevent any kind of laryngospasm that can be it's a it's a nice little trick
1: and eye lube should be there and readily available especially if you work in a same space as an ophthalmology department yes
0: yes the the <laughs> Because we tend to work right next to the optho team, we usually scream, not scream, very proudly announce, we're lubing the eyes now, and then they applaud us in our efforts to prevent corneal ulcers. Or you'll have several
1: assistants or other technicians saying,
0: did you lube the eyes? Did you lube the eyes? (laughs) It seems like it's everyone's top priority, even sometimes before establishing an airway, which may or may not be a soapbox of mine. So.
1: And then the most important thing to the owners is, did you put nail trimmers on your tray yes. and use the nail trimmers? Yes,
0: exactly. Top priority in every scenario, trimming nails. Yes. Um, and then I think our setup th- then can extend to kind of what's specific for this patient or this procedure. So. Um, Are we planning on placing an arterial line? So we'll need additional catheter placement, like another T-set, a couple catheter sizes, tape, scrub, clippers, that kind of situation. Um, Are we planning on placing a nasogastric tube? So let's say we found on our ultrasound that we have a really high volume of gastric fluid, and we are very concerned that this patient could regurgitate at us during the induction process before we've actually been able to intubate them. I usually think of like projectile exorcist cat as it's it just bubbles up at you and you just have to tip the cat down until it's over Um, ideally in that case you've actually have placed your ng tube prior to induction so making sure you have that supply out um, if you think you're going to need it and then i mean for those really sick ones then you can you might want to have a central line pulled out and all the equipment sterile gloves everything that kind of comes with that
1: and because we're in Reducing our patients in a separate area than where the surgery is going to be performed. Uh, what? I like to do is make sure that my OR is also set up. If you work with people that you really trust, then you can have another technician check that setup for you, uh, or you can do it yourself. And what you'll look for is the same. You want to make sure that your anesthesia machine is working properly and set up for your patient with the correct rebreathing bag and circuit size. Pressure checking your anesthesia machine hooking up a ventilator, if that's something that you're going to need, Um, or there's nothing more frustrating than getting into the OR and seeing that the ventilator perhaps is hooked up incorrectly or your circuit is hooked up incorrectly. Um, So those things are really important. And then also uh, making sure that there's appropriate heat support. And also making sure that all the accessories that go with your monitor are there and accounted for. Absolutely. And if your facility uses cautery, making sure your plate is lubed and ready to go and not beeping and making (laughs) crazy sounds. So um, just making sure that your OR space is
0: ready for that patient to roll into. Again, the whole point of doing this of this preparation for your anesthesia procedure, it seems like a really exhaustive list, but really it shouldn't take very much time. And in the end it will smooth out the whole process so much that you'll reduce your own stress. You'll reduce the stress in the room. And you'll also provide a better experience for your patient who is unconscious at this time and truly kind of, you know, at your mercy. So I think it's just a super important thing to think about before we get started and then so now we've gone through our history, we've created our day of plan, we've set up our our, intub- our intubation station, we've set up our initial anesthesia machine and our OR, and let's say we've gotten our patients all the way through this, and now we're about to start surgery. The last little checklist I like to go through, is pretty simple. I like to make sure that a, I have my antibiotic coverage on board, and that I have maybe one or two doses of my antibiotic available, depending on how long my procedure will take. I wanna make sure that I have quick IV access under the drapes. So if you have a back leg catheter, you're standing at the head, and you don't have a way to inject propofol rapidly in the case that your dog is waking up, that can be a real problem. And so either giving yourself a secondary line or like a, a needle into the port or something where you can have that quick IV access can be just huge for everyone's sanity. Um, making sure that my monitors are all functioning. I check, is my pulse ox working? Is my capnograph working? And then lastly, is my, am I monitoring the temperature? And if so, do I have my bear hugger and it's readily available? I find that sometimes I have walked into some maybe more complicated or stressed out scenarios where the temperature probe was never kind of put down the esophagus and then the the technician because they're trying to balance so many things they forgot to turn on the bear hugger and then by the time we look it's 94 degrees and that's just that's completely an an avoidable scenario um but again it just comes down to preparation and kind of going through your checklists
1: i think that is really important and i'm glad you said that because Um, I think that it is really easy with these more complicated cases or cases that have a lot of steps. It's easy to forget some of your simpler things like Mm -hmm. monitoring for temperature or making sure that in the last minute you have a port. Yeah. readily available. I think it's also important to have a good anesthesia team with you. So the anesthetist, um, another assistant in the room that is circulating, but that person can also be there to second check you saying, oh, hey, you left your cefaslin at your induction table. Yep. Reminding you, going kind of going over your mental checklist in your head as you're setting up your patient and getting ready way before the surgeon even yep. comes into the room.
0: Yeah. And in an ideal scenario, you are not the only one who knows what's going on. Everyone around you should kind of have an idea of the plan and the general component. So just being the anesthetist, it's not just your job to know how to run anesthesia. Not that the others need to be as well versus as you, but they should know that propofol is a drug that we need in, in case of an emergency, like reemergence to consciousness. And everyone should kind of be on like propofol awareness of like, where's your drug (laughs) and, um, make sure you grab it before we walk away because yeah, there's sometimes so many things going on that you need a second person who knows the scenario, um, that will help kind of catch anything that you might be missing because we're all human and that's totally expected.
1: Yeah, and I think, Dr. Duffy, you said it well in the beginning of this where you said um, making sure that you're as prepared as possible is only going to make the process better for yourself and for your patient and for everybody in
0: the room, honestly. Yeah, it really can be really huge. I think the last part to touch on before we end today is also thinking about our patients and what complications we are expecting to have to deal with. And ideally we have to deal with zero complications, although this world is definitely not that perfect. So if you know that you have a patient that has potentially like a lung problem, like a pneumothorax or a chylothorax, or you might be doing a lung lobectomy, or you have a dystocia, any time where you're expecting to see hypoxemia from poor lung inflation, maybe in addition to having a ventilator available if you have them, but grab a peep valve. Worst case scenario, you don't use it, but best case scenario, you don't have to go rummaging through a drawer to find it. Um, So having one or two, depending if yours is adjustable or not, um, just have it in with you with the OR can can be a huge lifesaver then also so many of our patients experience hypotension and so before you even get started you should have a plan if i if i do experience hypotension as i would say i don't know 30 percent of patients do is my plan to give fluids is my plan to give uh infusion of let's say dopamine or norepinephrine or uh do i give an anticholinergic what are my guidelines for this patient and that might be something you have to discuss with your clinician before you get started um, but it's best to have that kind of a very general framework before you get too involved in the case. And then if you are playing and using an infusion of, let's say dopamine, you need a pump, you need some kind of diluent to make your infusion with, you need a, a mini bore extension set to connect it. So especially if you think you're going to be in a lone overnight situation, just grab a pump, grab a, grab a, uh, an infusion set and grab the drug you might need, worst case scenario, you just never make it, you never use it and you put it back on the charger when you're done. But that's also another thing is that if you are using pumps and things, maybe you wanna bring a charger with you. Even if they say that they have full battery, you don't always can count on it. And having something scream at you in addition to the monitor scream at you and it can just sometimes be really tense. And having a charger can sometimes be like- A make it or break it. Oh yeah, like (laughs) emotionally make it or break it. (laughs) But I think, i think that's everything for today unless there's anything else you wanted to touch on no i
1: think that we touched
0: on all the topics
1: that i think are important for preparing yourself preparing your patient your team to make the transition into the or and out of the or as
0: smooth as possible absolutely and with that i want to thank all of you for listening to our podcast listening to our kind of streams of consciousness i hope that you walk away with this or from this presentation with something for you, for your team, for your patients. And if you are enjoying listening to us, feel free to share with your teams or anyone else who you think could benefit or who really enjoy, I don't know, veterinary anesthesia. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to your podcasts. And till next time, I guess we'll see you later.